ladies and gentlemen, extraterrestrials, plants, creatures, and other such beings on this planet or otherwise, depending on uh, depending on the region. You're listening to Inspirer Projecto here, uh, broadcast from Keqiang Studio, 1630 AM. Some of you might actually be listening to this in Chinatown within the two-block radius that this uh, broadcasts, or you might even be listening to this streaming online, keqiangradio.org. And we have two very special people in the studio today. Um, first, I just want to say... This is the last episode that I'm going to have before Halloween, so in a sense, I could kind of call this the Halloween episode, and who knows what kind of things that we're going to talk about on here. We could be talking about the, about uh, Halloween costumes, we could be talking about paranormal experiences, we could be talking about all kinds of cosmic stuff, but you can be guaranteed that you'll hear a lot about the creative process and what drives these two people to uh, create what they create and, uh, and where they want to go from there. So, uh, which I think is just the greatest, most exciting thing of all, is manifesting your reality into into your existence. So, uh, let's see, we got here, it's uh, October 21st, 2019. All right, so Spain Willingham, let's, uh, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself first. I'll have you two introduce yourselves um, to these fine folks. Just make sure you talk really close to the, uh, oh, and by the way, those of you who are listening, if you have... <laughs> Periscope or Instagram, we, we're broadcasting live on there right now. So you can actually see this uh, this video right now or even later on if you choose to do so. All right, go ahead, Spain. Sorry. Oh, good. I'm glad to be here. My name is Spain Willingham, and I'm uh, a writer-director here in Los Angeles. And we wrapped a movie called Beast Mode, and we're very happy that it is making the festival rounds at the moment. And um, doing all right. It's doing well, and people are digging it, and we hope to continue with the festival rounds and get it out in the wide distribution so everyone can watch it. That's the goal. Can't wait. I first saw your movie at Kapow, which which was such a joy to watch. I mean, it really is like an 80s film. It really is. There's not necessarily a time period given to it. I mean, yeah, there's some cell phones, you're not really pointedly saying, you know. It's a long lost movie from 1988 that happens to be set now. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. A lot of twists and turns, and the acting is just phenomenal, and it's great to see these people in roles that you never normally see them in. Right. I think that's why C. Thomas Howe did it, because he doesn't really do stuff like this, and he wanted people to see that he's also a pretty funny guy, and I think that uh, he would like to do more weird roles, and uh, maybe somebody will see him in this, and, you know, maybe that'll happen for him, but, uh, yeah, he was great, everybody was great, what a weird ensemble to, to get, and we were thrilled to get everybody that we got, it was awesome, I was just such a fan of everybody, so it was like, wow, such a cool thing to be in the midst of all these great people, but, um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Making it, it was a labor of love. It took a while because it was self-funded. It's a single camera, you know, kind of throwback movie, and uh, it wasn't easy. But we shot it in stages as I raised money periodically throughout in between, just like some of my old heroes did, like Frank Henenlotter and Stuart Gordon and some of my heroes from the 80s did. So, uh, yeah, we got it made, and I hope that it will pave the way for me to make my next feature. Was that crazy to direct some of these people and go, oh, my God, they're listening They're listening to me. These people are listening yeah. to my direction yes. and taking the, these little notes and now just running with them in this character. And they are like, oh, my God, I grew up watching this guy. Now he's listening to what I'm saying. After saying cut, you know, you're in the back 
having a, you know, a little bit of, you know, snacks or whatever, and you're like, so, uh, what was it like, you know, talking to Ray Wyatt, what was it like hanging out with David Lynch, what was it like being on RoboCop and just, I'm like, okay, well, hey, we got to get back in there. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I did that with everybody, and, you know, I was definitely, I was a passion. I, yeah, why, why, why not? And um, brought up a lot of old favorite flicks with all these actors, and nobody was worried about it at all. They were like, oh, what do you want to hear about? It was awesome. Wow. Yeah, it's got to ask everything. Wow. It was great. And some of them didn't get to work together, but some of them knew each other because they were like, oh, Leslie Easterbrook's on this movie? I worked with her back in 86 on this TV movie. So, you know, they all had a barely any degree of separation that you found out. But, um, yeah, it was a weird movie. As you've seen the movie, it is a weird movie. It's definitely a throwback to the 80s. And um, it is we, – we had a great win at Kapow. We had a great win in Michigan just recently at Thriller Chiller. We had a, another best of at Toronto. And then apparently we have placed in the upcoming Hollywood Awards that will be screening on the Paramount lot. On the second, wow! And from, I think we've got the San Francisco one coming up, so we're we're thrilled. Congratulations, man! I'm so excited. It's a funny movie, and we're glad to take the ticket. Uh, I want to introduce uh, Stephanie here now. Stephanie, have you, have you, uh, you're you're mostly in front of the camera. Have you have you done any uh, directing before, or had had that desire to? I am mostly in front of the camera. Hi, guys. I'm Stephanie Morris Sanchez. I'm an actor, performer, artist. Um, I just love creating stuff. I just love collaborating with other people. Like, even if it's just, like, making a connection at a party and you're like, like, the other night I was at a party and everybody started talking about Scooby-Doo. And it was just, like, neat to have that common thread and, like, everyone was, like, um, kind of thinking about, like, the relationships and the dynamics and, like, oh, like, was Shaggy high all the time? And, like, wait, Fred was wearing an ass. Like, why was Scrappy walking upright? You know, Scooby's. <laughs> but it's just like fun to like have that common where you start like you know jumping on top of each other and getting excited about things. Yeah, that's what I love to do. Yeah, you know, like just getting together and getting excited and like yes, canding like like an improv. Um, so I've done mostly in front of camera stuff, but I have been writing the last couple years. Um, I, I wrote my first screenplay last year and. Second one, um, so that's a newer territory to me. Uh, so I'm, you know, honing my craft, but I feel like I have a knack for storytelling, and I think even just coming from an acting background, um, it's easier for me to write for other people's voices because I have such a expanded empathy that I'm used to like lending myself to feeling into other people. So it's easier for me to like write dialogue or. So it's easy for you to jump into each of these characters. It is. I want to. Kind of like, I think most artists are curious about humans. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to see what their experiences are about. We want to not just, like, watch it, but we want to experience what they're experiencing. We're, like, willing to lend our hearts to other people. So writing is just more of that. And I've never directed a project, although I occasionally coach other actors for auditions, which is kind of like directing. Yeah. So I feel like it's something that I could do, but I haven't done it yet. I think mm -hmm. what will happen is it will end up being uh, an expansion of my writing. You know, like 
I'll write something. Like so far, like the screenplay I'm working on right now, it's, it's, I've not written a part for me. I'm just writing a story that I like. And so as it expands, I might end up, if not directing, being behind the camera, collaborating with the director, you know, like, oh, this is how I saw it. And I do see myself as a, a content creator. So, do, so, so that you haven't, yourself any parts. <laughs> well, I have. I have, but nothing that I've actually developed. Like, I've done quite a bit of writing of, like, shorts and sketches and things. And in the first screenplay I wrote, I do have a part in that. But I haven't, it hasn't been developed. And the second one is about, I, I served in the military. I was in the Navy and during the current war. And so I, I've never wanted to write about it. I've always been like, yeah, 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 because our own experiences always feel like um, not that big of a deal because we did it. We're always so much more inclined to appreciate other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I did it. It wasn't a big deal. Whatever. I'm over it. I don't want to talk about it. But now seems like the time to tell the story, you know, in that we're moving towards stories about women and this is a woman in a man's world. And there's adversity, and um, and so it's like the right time for the story. And whether I want to tell it or not, people want to hear it. Mm -hmm. That's why I keep getting constant inquiry, and like you should write that, you should write that. <clears throat> so I'm finally writing it. And feel free to like squeeze in and chime in here, Spain, because I don't want to. <laughs> we should probably just become Siamese twins, <laughs> so then we can both talk. Because I don't want it to be like I'm talking and you're talking. No, no, this and is. I, and I don't, I don't have personal boundaries, so. So, so, so what? I mean, in t in this day and age, like in terms of like cameras and uh, you know, like Steve Soderbergh is shooting stuff on iPhones now. He's shooting. He shot a feature film. He's oh, shooting he a TV retired. show. Oh, he retired. Well, what's great is that you know. What, then I actually worked with him. Oh, you did? I was cast in the Candelabra, cast and shot a scene as a news anchor, and it was cut from the film. But I have pictures with Steven Spielberg, and, you know, I got to work with him, which is pretty amazing because he's kind of talented, iconic. Yeah, amazing. yeah. You know, yeah. and I was definitely nervous, like, before going to set, and then when I got to set, it was like it wasn't a scene with anyone else. It was just me giving lines to camera. But at the same time, it was the biggest crew I'd ever been a part of. You know, so they like ring the bell, or you know, I'm sure you know from it's like you graduate to bigger and bigger, and then it's when it's like a giant crew. You feel as a performer like more onus on you. Like I don't want to fuck it up because you don't want to make the crew have to wait longer, do more takes. There's just this feeling of like like I want to carry this for everyone. You know, and I'm just coming in here to do this little scene, so I don't want to, you know, be the, the whatever, weak link in the chain. So, like, I was in my chair, like, saying my little, like, news speech over and over and over. And then when I got to set, he's like, oh, let's just do a rehearsal. And so I did one. He's like, oh, we should have shot that. Okay, just do it, like, three times, however you want. So I did it three times, however I want, and it was like, okay, done. I was, like, in and out in, like, two minutes. And I felt pretty good about myself because, you know, I just... I didn't, you know, waste anyone's time. Yeah. That is so cool. And I got yeah. to wear a really cool, like, 1983, like, 
suit, like it was like pastel yellow with like one of those cute little like bows, you know, around like it was very like Diane from Cheers. Oh, cool. You know, sometimes movies are just a little too long. Probably had nothing to do with you at all. Probably just the pacing thing. That sucks that it wasn't in there. Well, and sometimes, like, when you have two actors, like, it was Matt Damon and uh, Michael Douglas, you know, they're going to hold a prolonged stare (laughs) and use that (laughs) screen time over my new speech because these are stars. (laughs) Okay, let's see. What do we keep with a prolonged stare? Do we cut out that really uh, ingenious newscast? Douglas did a really good job on that stare on the <laughs> There were two nostril players and zero players. <laughs> Let's keep that. <laughs> two nostril players. Check out the TV ish streaming stuff now, not really like which guy did sort of you know, oh, sort of like the theatrical like of things maybe when he said I'm kinda moving away, retiring from that. So that's interesting. But I knew that when he said retiring I you get the edge, man. It's prolific. You can't play that. And then there's, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis had up three or four times and said, that is it. What yeah. does that even mean, retire? What does that even mean? What does that, that mean? Yeah. 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 That's a good question. What does that mean? I don't know. Like, uh, why would you ever want to stop creating? I'm not going to create? That's why I don't buy that. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to stop. Maybe I'm not going to put pressure on myself. Maybe that's what retiring means. Is I'm saying it out loud so oh. that I can crazy when bands broke up because it's like why don't you just say we're taking a hiatus like what you don't go don't go through all the paperwork and like actually officially break up you guys like someday you might want to like the hell freeze is over tour right with yeah. the Eagles <laughs> they're like we'll get back together when the hell freeze is over it's like well I guess we'll call this the hell freeze is over tour you know you just gotta go well, I it's, it's so interesting because what it's interesting that like Steve Soderbergh goes back to the independent independent days. It's so funny, like, you'll hear you'll hear some of these big bands, you know, reminisce about the olden days where they were just playing, you know, in a, in a 50 people on a small smoky bar someplace. And, they, and yet, as they're, gro- as they're growing up, they're going, oh my god, someday we're going to play the Hollywood Bowl. You know, so it's funny that Chris is bringing out a new side type of thing, and sometimes we don't give ourselves that opportunity to really appreciate where we're at in that moment, to really soak it in and really soak it in. That's true. And it's crazy how that is, like Steve Soderbergh, the fact that, I mean, I remember reading this article one time where um, there's a studio that wanted to give him $10 million to make a movie, and he goes, I wouldn't know what to do with $10 million. How about you make me, how about I can do 10 to $1 million movies? <laughs> He's like, how, how about that instead? Yeah. I, I can play that. How I feel. Right? right? You know, if somebody was like, oh, man, here's, here's 10, I'd be, I would, I would, that would be my reaction. I would say, oh, boy, I guess I'm going to need some. Very triple A names to pay out this money because I really think I can get what I need. Yeah. And like very less than that. But yeah, know. put in some uh, CGI in some unnecessary explosions that were just totally yep. not even. But you know, you start working in teams and all of a sudden you're like, oh man, the budget just oh, God. tenfold. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I need to ever get into that realm, but every movie I've done has been bigger and I hope that 
The following one is, uh, you know, a million. Let me work with a million this time. I have a question. I'm not the host, but I'm just curious, Spain, how you and Kurt know each other. Uh, through the Kapow Film Festival, yes, a month or so ago. Yeah. So he, he entered his film. We ended up finding out that we went to Columbia College after, after he was already there. Uh, our mutual friend, Matt Jones, Matthew M. Jones, um, he, he was the one who connected us all. And uh, it was such a joy. He's like, you've got to see Beast Mode. I mean, this is going to be great, you know. And then we saw Beast Mode up, up on a big screen. I'm like, okay, whoever directed this movie, I know I'm going to get along with very well. And, dude, we just couldn't stop talking. Once, once I met him face to face, it just, you just couldn't stop talking. Do you have like similar sensibilities or similar like things that tickle you, kind of thing? <laughs> You're very observant. Talk about being yeah. an empath. You, you can see those things. I there was I felt that way. There was this one sketch that happened a few years ago, and I don't know. You know, the different cast members write different sketches, but I don't. I still don't know who wrote it. But by watching it, I felt the exact same way. Like that person is my hero. You know what I mean? Like. That is my sense of humor to a T. Right. It was like everything they were doing was like, you know, I'm like knee slapping and like just like like I just wanted to watch it over and over because it was very physical comedy. It was basically like a soap opera with Chris Hemsworth and um, uh, Kate McKinnon, yep. and they were acting all serious and dramatic. But they had Keenan Thompson as the director, and and he was like, I directed the Jeffersons, and he like mispronounced <laughs> it like that. is married. I want you to let that sink in. And he's like, but I know she's married. He's like, but now it's really sinking in. <laughs> and he's like, so you're going to blow their heads. <laughs> As I'm saying, go away! It's Those are some of my favorite Saturday Night Live episodes, like those actors that, particularly the olden days, uh, Bill Murray and all those guys, because they, they, they wouldn't break character. If they did, it was very, very rare. You know, it wasn't until later on that you saw the actors kind of self-aware. Right. Going, wow, that's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. yeah, like Adam Sandler was always breaking. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was always breaking. And then Chris Farley was always making everyone break. Oh, yeah. started watching, and um, it's just it was such a joy around the late 80s, early 90s to watch that cast, and you know, there's some great cast in the late 90s too, but there was an age, as everyone knows, between like 88 and like 95, 
dream if you're going into comedy like I was oh, back then. Yeah. In Chicago, before, uh, or excuse me, during the Columbia days, I got a sketch group together and we did uh, a late night Saturday sketch uh, performance I at the Lakeshore Theater. Wow. And it was great. And we did that for a few seasons. And then I did a little bit of Second City. And then I went to San Francisco and started doing video games. But yeah. Um, a lot of sketch in my background, um, improv as well, but more, uh, I was more like a sketch director, writer, and also one of the main actors, and loved physical comedy, loved doing that back in the day, would maybe do it again, you know, like a broken lizard, get a gang of cool comedians together, whether it be here or somewhere else, and do a movie together, it'd be awesome. Yeah, I'm such a sucker for physical comedy. Definitely a big fan of that age. And um, I don't know, watching those guys grow at a young age, I think it, it, it got me going in that direction as far as trying to make people laugh. That was always my big thing. Stand-up comedy, you know, I can't stand there with a mic, with a light shining. I can't see them. I can only <laughs> see a bright light. And I can't really do it. But when it comes to uh, sketch comedy where you rehearse a little five-minute sketch with other people and you get it and you've got some props and then, okay, we've got this 70-minute show with ten sketches every Saturday. Okay, now that I'm better at. But when it comes to holding the mic like some of my friends do, stand up, like she said, if I'm moving, like I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm making people laugh. It's not static. It is movement. I am very <laughs> physical. I am very physical. So, uh, you know, if I had some training with some of my um, some of the wiser people that have been doing it for years, maybe I could do some stand-up. But, you know, standing there with a mic, I'm just, it's weird to me. It's very foreign to me. I don't have a lot of experience. I love checking out a good stand-up comedian. And as you say, when they're just static, I mean, they have to be very hilarious because when the guy is doing things with his body and acting out some of the things he's talking about, it's, it's a lot funnier for me. It's a lot more my comedy and, uh, yeah, I've always thought about doing stand-up, but again, I would have to have, I can't just get up there and start chatting, you know, I have to really have like a set list at my feet with like a word that I can, oh yeah, that, okay, now I get it, I'm just, yeah, it's, it's, people are like, man, you, it's funny you should do stand-up, it's like, nah, just put me in a movie, put me, uh, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where if someone tells you that, you know, you should be a stand-up comedian, they're saying that when you're already in the moment, kind of in a groove of something. They're, right. they're, it's like correct. you're not pre-planning, trying to make somebody... You're at a party, you're making a bunch of people laugh. You should do stand-up. Yeah. 
right, right. Now there's their pressure. Fifteen, twenty years to hone their their attacks, their their yeah, like like even you watch Louis C.K. who he's hilarious and he's so funny that he can almost get away with anything. And he says some horrible things, but he's so funny he can almost get away with it. And um, but you look at his stuff like in the '90s, and he wasn't that funny. Same guy, but he just hadn't honed his craft like any craft. It takes so much practice to kind of. Also, stand-up comedy, even though they they have their story, it's still an improv- improvisational form of art. Mm-hmm. In that, if something's not working, they got to be uh, in, in a symphony with the crowd. It's it's a give and take. It's not like yeah. there's a wall there and there's. And I think that's any art. Since we're talking about art and process, is you kind of have to be in symphony with whoever you're working with, mm-hmm. whether you're directing mm-hmm. and you're working with actors. You can't be disappointing. My mind, it was this way. You know what I mean? Not that way now. You know, like the same thing with who yeah. you're working with. Yep. Like if, if somebody, if there's like, uh, you know, a script and, and your scene partner is totally off, like when I say off book, I don't mean memorized. I mean they're making up the lines. Yeah. Well, you just got to go with it and be like, well, our conversation is about our kids, so I'm not going to worry about the fact that they're <laughs> saying whatever the hell they want. <laughs> I know what the, like, heart of the scene is, so I'm just going to improvise with them. If, that's, if they want to, you know, have a monologue that's not written, That's what's good about like the sketch comedy aspect is that you have the people that you can bounce off of. You have those people that you you, you, you gain the synergy, this this harmony where you know that it's there's almost like that invisible volley, volleyball that's bouncing between all of you. And you know you can kind of tell when it's time to enter and when to sit on the side and let them jump in and you know, and people don't hog the ball and you can feel like like sketch comedy is just the best ever. I, I was in a few of those in, in Chicago, and I'm reading right now this thick book. It's called Ensemble, and it's all about the Chicago theater. It's all about all of the, the Chinese theaters that started sprouting up there, and there was no competition. It was pure cooperation. So whoever set up a theater company over here, maybe someone branched off, and they decided they're going to make a theater company over here, and then and then these people started working together, and then oh, someone over here, and then they they trade off with each other, and this guy would direct over at these shows, and this guy would act over here, and there was never any of this feeling of like. You know, they were, they, were, they were aware and appreciative of each other's tribes, and it was just so kick-ass. And, you know, they're building upon Viola Spolin and the whole, the whole book of, of improvisation. And how Actually, it all just I took um, a class that was based on Viola Spolin's technique, and it's, it's taught by Stephen Wilk. He basically was one of her students, and he teaches a class here in L.A. But it's basically um, improvising for scripted dialogue. So she, Viola Spolin... Was she started improv in Chicago, which was like a general improv, not necessarily for sketch comedy. And then Second City was born out of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think that was started by her son, Paul Stills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, have you read about some of that in your book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is like ringing bells. But um, she was all about just um, that acting is an improv- improvisational thing. And, th- and really that's what life is. It, yeah. Like you shouldn't. Everything shouldn't be by row. Even if there are lines that are scripted, it still should be happening in the moment. Not like, and then I get really angry and I do my fist just like this. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? It, it should. It should be able to happen spontaneously. Like so that if you spit in my face, I don't not notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, I'm like, right. Oh, you just fucking spit in my face. I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I was at a point. But, <laughs> but you know, like. 
it really thinks because it's it's so much more like it's human to, to acting is improvisational, like it's happening right here, right now. Whether you want to say that we're pretending, the fact of the matter is this story is happening right now. Right. This and, is and it's not, story. It's not happening without me saying a line. So basically it's happening to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. And We're as a kid, we got that. Oh, and yeah, as yeah. Adults, everything's all like this construct. As kids, if we were to roll dinosaur, we were a dinosaur. It oh, was yeah, yeah. And everyone, you know, there was no like, uh, okay, what are you doing? <laughs> it's just purely you're jumping into it. Yeah, and, and there was lava, if there was lava. Yeah, absolutely was. Anyway, yeah. you did not want to touch the floor. No, no. And it was serious. Yeah. It wasn't oh, yeah. like, who's watching? Is this a science lab? Is someone there depending on? Who's oh, yeah. Watching and how right. Was Absolutely. You know, that's so interesting because that's one of the things that keeps coming back in this one book is that, you know, they're, they're constantly trying to reset everybody's minds into that childlike that, into that childlike mindset. And these people were just so hungry to be creating in the theater and, and helping out no matter what. Like, oh, you need help with the lights? Okay, I'll totally help out with the lights this time. And, you know, and the person who was just helping out the lights and all of a sudden they're on stage, you know, ten minutes later. And they were just so excited about being in that childlike state of mind. That's the thing. It's like when – you got you got the pure spontaneity and, and the pure you know yes and spirit and then you got the over analytical and over critical people over there standing there with their arms crossed going hmm, well is that right you know I don't know and and they're it's like it's a difference between a film critic who's sitting on the couch who has the luxury of just going well you should have done this well you should have done that well it would have been better if you did this the difference between that person and the person who's actually just making the art and going and hanging on for dear life just going okay I don't know where we're going but I'm hanging Let's just see where it takes me. And there's something really exciting about that. When you when you let it surprise you, when you don't let it show you something that you never even knew was there. Do you find that when you're on set, when you were doing uh, Beast Mode, you're like, what the heck? I wrote this in the thing, but then he just said this awesome line that totally fit this foreshadowing with this other thing that I've been playing that I didn't know about. Um, lines, maybe more, more like, you know, guys, what about this? You know, maybe not just the line, but maybe like a, a, a movement, a cue, a, a different uh, direction. You know, I've only done it a few times. We're dealing with people on set that have been around for decades who have been on many sets who have had the presence of directors that have gone on to, you know, to be some of the greatest of all time. You know, it's just like, wow. So um, I'm definitely down to take advice and cues from some of the legends in the industry or not. Uh, some person who's the first time they've done something with this date, and they might have some cool idea. But yes, there were certain times when, and a certain actor might think, "What about this?" And you know, it might not just be a line. It might not just be a certain way they come into a scene. But yeah, there was there were some cool. So you're saying that you were open to those? Yeah, yeah, I, those we, ideas. yeah. We, Kristen and I, were never like, "Thank you so much for uh, you know." Even diving deeper into the character and having your own thoughts, but look, you know, we're kind of doing it our way, and that's it. 
can you imagine? No, I'm sure and it's beautiful when you guys bring in those ideas, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, it, that showed us how much they cared for the project, and mm-hmm. um, they really took to their characters. Like, Seton Fell became this dude bringing Nash, this producer, you know? He, he became that guy. And again, CT doesn't do a lot of weird, kind of zany roles like that, so to wrap his head around that kind of comedic role was, was different for him, and it was fun to watch. Stephanie, are there specific roles that you think, like dream roles, that, and you know, who better to write them than yourself since you're a writer, but uh, are there specific dream roles that you think that you'd really, really like to play, maybe a, a superheroine, uh, a, a, a spy, a scuba diver, you know, I don't know, are, is there any sort of role that you go, whoa, I can really sink my teeth into that? All of them. All of them. Next question. So, Spain, tell me about <laughs> Well, honestly, it, it's not so much necessarily the specific role. It's more like when I watch a movie and something resonates with me to where I'm deeply moved. A movie or a TV show. Like, for example, Fleabag. Have you guys seen Fleabag? Is that a TV show? <laughs> well, season two, it's not even necessarily the whole series. Like, I, it's a great series, but, you know, it's not every moment. But there's a relationship between... Um, this priest and the main character Fleabag, and it's just a genuine connection. And what um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge created in that she wrote it, in that connection she created, is so real and so human. And it, it's it's basically a display of everything that I want to do and be about in my artistry. You know, like in that these two, this priest and this potty mouth sex addict hot mess find a connection and it's real and it has nothing to do with their persona and it's love and it ends up being like it doesn't you know go I don't want to be a spoiler but you know it's not about like being attracted to each other Mm -hmm. it transcends that in that it's a real connection and it's just so like palpable watching it and, and when I connect to something like that that's when I go, that's what I want to do. And it's not necessarily about the role. It's that I want to tell the stories that that I feel connected when I'm playing it out and that I'm able to um, step into something and channel something that people watching can feel and experience for themselves. Because so often people that are not artists or are not expressed or are not comfortable being vulnerable don't have an outlet because they're not comfortable saying how they feel, writing music about how they feel, mm. singing about how they feel. They're not, they're not, not everybody's comfortable expressing, but they can sit down and watch a movie and they can allow me, the storyteller, to feel and experience things. And because they're watching, they can experience it too. And it's healing. There's an actual um, physical thing that happens in that when a person's really going through something, I'm not talking about bad acting, but, like, if I'm really experiencing something, like joy or excitement or passion, what happens is is that the person with me will experience that, too, because we have this thing called mirror neurons. And so just by being in my presence, if I go through something, you go through it, too. And, and that's what I want. Like, I take... I take my, I don't take myself seriously, but I take my craft seriously in that I want to be good at it 
so that I'm available as a vessel so that I can tell people's stories so that other people can be seen and felt and healed and entertained. What's Not interesting just, is, you know, also, I, I, like all the levity we were talking about earlier, that's healing, but a lot of times it's healing because at its source is the truth of life, the pain of life. You know, like mm-hmm. when we laugh out loud as a comedian, a lot of times we're expressing something really painful. We laugh out loud because of the truth. Because we're like, yes, I get it. Yeah. Right. You know? We associate with that. We reflect that in some way. Like, ah, I know what you just said. Right. That told like, me. Like, I, did, I couldn't have the bravery to say that out loud, but you just did. But you the know, reason like, you're laughing out loud is because it's true and it resonates with you. Yeah, yeah. And so, but like, to specifically, like, I just, I like, love, I would, I love telling meaningful stories. Um, like Spotlight, that movie was about what happened in Boston with the priests and how they sort of, um, uh, the, the Boston Globe, is it? The, the newspaper journalists basically went undercover and sort of found out that the extent of how the priests were, you know, molesting and how the Catholic Church knew and was covering it up. And so those kind of stories that make you think and wake you up and make you talk and make you, like, really look at things. I like those kind of woke stories, you know? And then also just, I'm a child myself, so I love, like, time travel, meaning, like, not literal, like, back to the future, but, like, if I can go back to the 60s or the 70s or, you know, 1920s, I love, I'm obsessed with, like, going back in time and, like, appreciating and experiencing our history and our past eras. So... Those are some some things, I guess. <laughs> so, having said that, this is interesting because you. So, Spain, did you write these mode as well? I did. Yeah, with the help of a buddy. But yes, well, we I wrote it, and then my buddy came in, and we wrote it, and then my co-director was like, "Let's one more time," and then we were able to shoot it. So, this is what I'm curious about. So, to, to piggyback on what you just said about you know writing. Or, well, uh, first of all, from the pr- perspective of acting out a, a, <clears throat> a character that's on a script and bringing those real elements to them, how do you even write that in the first place? What kind of process do you go through in writing a character that, you know, poetically says something? You know, you, you can squish, you know, maybe ten pieces of, you know, amazing poetry down into like, you know, two little lines where you're going, ah, that really just said everything, like, could have said, you know, five or ten lines. You know, I had to beat this obsession with the industry out of me. The movie before this and this one are industry movies, which what I mean is uh, they're like movies about filmmakers. And um, as a filmmaker, not a super experienced one. I've only done a few movies. But as someone who's been obsessed with cinema my whole life, I wear this shirt because I saw this in 86 and it changed my life forever. I know that that was it for me. (laughs) I want to be a horror director. And I've never strayed. From 86 until the first time I started making movies. But, you know, it was so easy for me to just, it's fun, it's just like, it just comes right out when I write these things because I guess they're just, they're just up there. I mean, watching every single freaking horror movie ever made from like 1980 to now, and, you know, plenty in the past too, of course, but, you know, just, I was, I was born in the early 80s and I just, I remember the newspaper ads, you know, cutting them out and, like, putting them in certain parts of the house so that, please, Dad, Mom, please take me. <laughs> so when I write these 
same place they come out here usually and, and they're about stuff I'm into, like movies, movies and directors and uh, people are like, man, I've never been on a movie set, but when I watch a movie, I get a sense of how it is. I get the lingo and I, I get the feeling like I'm on a movie set because your movies like First World Problems, which I did a few years back, and then this one, Beast Mode, are both uh, about actors and directors and stuff, and I think I've got it out of my system now, but <laughs> yeah, basically to answer your question, it's really easy, it just flows right out, I don't have any great, I'm, I'm not like some, <laughs> I can't write these amazing lines, like wow, man, blowing my own mind here with these, this prose, like no, I just, we're just having fun, I think with the next one, it's going to be a little more of a bigger stakes, bigger scale, kind of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers meets They Live, sort of. So I think it will be a little bit of a bigger film, as in just everything, and it won't be such a, a midnight kind of culty thing. Mm. I, I want it to be more <laughs> like, hey, this is, this is like theatrical. This has got to be, you know, so that's the hope. But yeah, So, Stephanie, where, how do you do that with your writing, you know, in terms of, are you belaboring the process? I know you're writing groups. You know, does that beat up some of the original ideas you had, or does that help you sculpt them better? Uh, you know, how does that work when you have ideas? There's, you a, go, lot I want to say. Really There's a lot to say about writing. Um, I think I'm always learning about writing. I'm newer to it, but I think any writer is always learning. Um, let's see, a few things to address. I think if you're a writer or any kind of artist, one of the greatest, I guess, things or um, catalysts that you can utilize to create is to have a poetic heart. And what that means is when someone writes a poem, they're writing as if experiencing something for the first time. And, and I think and I, it's actually made me more of a poet. Like, sometimes I actually write poems. Mm. And I think when you can learn to write poetry, it really develops you as an artist, whether you're a singer, whether you're an actor, because you're experiencing something with your five senses, not just cerebrally through your brain. Mm -hmm. So, by like, you start with writing from the five senses. And obviously, for the, for the screen, you can't smell and taste. But you could, you could create a picture of food so that the audience would get the sense of that, you know? Yeah. So it's, you just, it's basically like allowing yourself to experience the world with your five senses, and you go from there, and you less left brain, more right brain, I would say, because writing is rewriting. That's a cliche, but it's really about getting your story down, and then you can always edit. Like, your dialogue doesn't have to be perfect poetry or real snappy Aaron Sorkin. It can just be kind of bleh, you know, but I got my points out. And you can go back and finesse it. Yeah. But I feel like, you, you know, a lot of times you, you could be going for a walk or something or in the shower and you're like, oh, I have an idea. And then it's just about getting that idea out. Even if it's literally like you open up a blank page and write bullet points down. So yeah. then you're like, I want this scene to happen. Then it's out there. Then you can shape it and let yourself get inspired. Uh, or sometimes I'll listen to a song, and a whole movie will happen for me, you know, because that song inspires feelings. So it's like writing it is, is, is another form of expression, really, and it's about being in touch with your five senses and not going.
governing that kind of right and wrong that just good or bad, which we all do, but the less you can do that, the more right. writing you'll actually get done. Because that's what editing is. You, you just get, get your, let yourself fly, let yourself have fun, and then you can put on your other cap and be like, okay, typos, okay, this is lame. You know, but let yourself have the fun and the freedom because you can always delete stuff. Yeah. Or change it. So that's, that's my two cents about Well, it's interesting because, you know, there's, there's this idea that, uh, you know, you hear a lot of actors going, oh, my God, I really didn't even have to do much character prepar- preparation or anything. I, I, it was all right there on the page for me. It was written right there. I know exactly how to play this character thanks to the, how they're interacting with the other people, thanks to the specific word choices they're using. And you're going, oh, my God, whoever this writer is, they're brilliant. They just gave it all to me right there. Do you – do you, when you're writing, are you imagining, like, giving that, in a sense, as a gift to the actors, or are you just trying to, I mean, I'm trying to think about how the heck to even word it, but are, are you trying to, uh, like, you, you, you just said, okay, you just get it out there, and later on you can edit it. Um, I, I know what you're asking, so I don't necessarily know who's going to play it. If I was writing for somebody, then I would embody them, and, you know, like, if I know you, and I'm writing for you, I would embody Kurt. And it would probably be really enthusiastic with a lot of mannerisms and cool and, like, but so far out. And, like, you know, like, I would just embody you, right. and the dialogue would come from me feeling into you. And I might have to change things. Oh, that's interesting. But, like, I would embody you, and it's almost like I'm a channel. And that's also Ooh, that's where really I, I, I feel like that's where spirituality comes in, too, and that I'm not even writing it. Like, I'm literally just allowing it to come mm-hmm. in that I'm putting, I'm, like, sitting, standing in Kurt's shoes. I'm talking like Kurt. Like, I don't have his accent. <laughs> Slight, moderate accent. <laughs> but I know what he's like. He's so excited about life. So everything is crazy with coincidences and synchronicities. <laughs> you know, I like, it. I know Kurt. I know your essence. Yeah, yeah. So I just would just. Body that person, like whoever they are, I don't even know this gentleman right here, but um, he's a, he is getting uh, some amusement from us right now, <laughs> so I might be able to write, well, they're awfully fond of themselves, <laughs> you know, <laughs> write something, you know, like, um, yeah, so that's how I write the characters is by like embodying their essence, whether it's for a person or whether it's a character I've created, like, this is a snobby Beverly Hills mom, then I'm just literally like, hmm, <laughs> you know, like, I'll just embody it, and the dialogue comes out of that. Oh, that's such a good... So no. that's sort of where the acting comes in, is when I'm so, like, um, so ready to jump in and be that person. That is cool. I mean, that's the I essence of being a shapeshifter. So, yeah. in Spain, for, for Bismo, you had a multitude of characters in there. How the heck did you... And they each had their own personalities. I mean, yes, obviously the, the, the actors who came to play those characters brought their own thing. However, just the, 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 the dialogue for each of those. I mean, yeah. what did you do to try to separate those in your brain? Or um, You know, the first read-through, you're sitting with all these actors, and it, that's one of the first times when I can really finally give some actor subtext about who these characters are and where they come from. Uh, Jimmy Duvall is playing two different people, 
And, you know, they're pretty different people, so, you know, you're trying to talk to them about how big of an a-hole Uncle Saxton is and quite the opposite of um, the, the gentleman that he's playing that happens to look like Huckle, whose name is Michael. And um, But you never really, you know, it, yeah, so CT, how you tell him, like, look, you're not one of these cutthroat SOBs in Hollywood that's just like, you know, the typical, you know, just a-hole uh, agent or manager or producer. He's more charismatic, and he just wants to get these movies done, and he had a big bomb with uh, the old movie that, you know, was one of the biggest bombs of all time and trying to get back on track. So you just have fun. It's one of the first times you get everybody in the room together when you're having that first read-through and you're Everyone's like, okay, I've read the script. I know my character, but tell me about him. And, you know, you, you talk about their past. You, you make up, you know, a, a, a mindset for these people to get into and, and, and hang into for, you know, well, the duration of the shoot. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun coming up with all these weird characters over the years and previous movies and this one especially because we've got everything. We've got, you know, the... Uh, TMZ-style reporter. We've got the Hollywood hot shots. We've got the gumshoe. We've got the actors. That, you know, it's, it's, you know, like I said, it's like a milk. So do you, for each of those characters, did you have a whole history written for each of these guys? Because, I mean, they're pretty pretty detailed. Nothing that I wrote and gave them, like, this is the history of your, nothing like that. But we definitely had conversations when I thought, this is probably what Huckle Saxon would be doing on your typical night. This is probably what your counterpart would be doing. He would probably be home eating cereal, watching an old rerun of some 70s sitcom that he hadn't seen since he was a child. Probably. Yeah, so, you know, it's fun. It is fun to talk to the actors about who they were, who they are, and uh, they appreciate that. I'm an actor, I'm also a director, so I know how, I hope, to how to speak to some of my fellow actors about coming up in the scene, and it's just like, okay, there's lines on a sheet of paper, but what are we doing? How are we moving? Who am I, man? Like, yeah, I, I love getting into it, and that was some of the fun things we did in Columbia, Chicago during my years there, when I'm taking directing classes with uh, actual film directors. That was cool. It was great, and it, it brought me a lot of guidance years later when I got to direct features. So actually, you, you just re-reminded me. Okay, so that's right. So you directed it, you wrote it, and you also you also had that. I was Huckle so Saxton. Sorry, sorry, Huckle Saxton too. I was Hampton Russ. Well, how do you do that hair. sort of Mel Gibson thing, like in Braveheart? Like, how do you? How are you not answering well, your own performance while you're doing this? Or I was how kind of a supporting role in Beast Mode, but. I did direct Personal Problems a few years back, and I was a co-lead. So that was harder. But how do you harder. do? What do you? How do you do that? Okay, I'll tell you. In Beast Mode, Chris Freeman, my co-director. Oh, so he had a co-director. Thank God. Was he also your co-writer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was my next question. Was it? Was it? Do you think it's easier? And I want to ask you. Ask you as well, sir. But do you? Do you think it's easier to have a co-writer to be able to bounce ideas off of? Chris is a genius when it comes to pacing and getting your acts in order so it's formatable for you to shoot. Oh. He's a genius with that. I'm great at coming up with cool ideas, but this, this, he 
piece of paper that I'm holding that you call a script, and we can't shoot this. But once I help you, some of them, and now we're now Drew and I have something that we're really proud of. Because, um, you know, that's important. Because when you have two people sharing responsibilities, like I'm helping with gore effects and all these things, and Chris is over here with some of the actors, and then we might switch, and Chris is helping with a location and pinning it down and getting all these permits and all these big things, and then I'm over here with the actors going, all right, let's rehearse. So it's great. I did not have that on the first two films. It was just me directing. So when I'm doing First World Problems back in San Francisco, back in uh, 2011, 2012, it was a lot harder. You've got every department head going, like costumes, makeup, uh, sets, electricians, asking you all these questions. And I'm like, God, oh I'm rehearsing. God. I'm about to be oh in the my scene. God. It was harder. It was a lot easier when I was That's a lot to juggle in the back of your head. This time, you still had a little bit more of a supporting role. So, yeah, it was. It was insane. I thought about the Mel Gibsons and the all these people who've done behind and in front at the same time. Oh, oh, my gosh. And I actually right. saw a Q&A with him as he was talking about it, and he was saying that he's just been in the industry so long. He's been in since he was a child. He was on Little House on the Prairie with Michael Landon. That was his first job. Spoons. Yeah, yeah. And um, he said it's he, – he, he, he's very humble in that he was like, well, I don't know how great my acting is because I'm in the scene and I'm also directing it while I'm in it. But he also was – so he's basically saying – I don't know how great I am. This is what I'm doing while I'm acting, and I'm directing it and watching it. But, you know, but I've been doing it a long time, so I've got some skill level. And he's basically saying, well, you know, like a shrug, like, it is what it is, but uh, I don't know if I'm any good. And he's also said, I tend to play straight characters that are kind of close to me. He's a very, very humble, but he did, he's... Um, he seems like such a cool guy. He's so nice. He's exactly how he seems. That's the nice, that's the good news. Now, with your writing, do you, do you want to have a co-writer? That's what I want to ask you. Uh, do you I was going to say, um, be helpful? whether it's a co-writer or, or just somebody who's, like, producing and giving feedback, I think it's so much easier to get something done and shape it when you have someone to collaborate with. Because it has to do with accountability. Because if you're just writing by yourself, there's no one to check in with. So you could just go two or three weeks and not do anything. <laughs> right, right. Even if you do, even if you have a deadline, you could have a, if the deadline six months. Well, I don't need to do it today. You know what I mean? Like I think I'll just watch something that's been around, or you know. So having somebody like to meet with, to check in with, it it it's not only like catalyzes you to do more work, but also it's encouraging and inspiring. Like I was talking about earlier about when you connect about something. Like I was talking about Scooby Doo. Mm-hmm. Well, like if you're if find something in your in your script that you're writing that you both are excited about, it's like two heads are better than one. So you start like, what is that, when you are stacking on top of each well, other? Well, it's like the Scooby-Doo sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it's like you just keep like, or Scooby Snacks, when yeah. it's possible, it's even better. Yeah. But, like, but um, it's just like when you have two keep people that are excited it? about something, oh, right. then there's an energy, mm-hmm. a synergy. And, and that's what creativity is, is like, we feed off each other. It's how we make a movie, you know, is it's like there's this idea, but then there's so many people that contribute and amplify, essentially, yeah. what our little kernel was. So having two people, I think, is always better. Now, the actual writing, I would say 
Sometimes it's fun to write with people. Sometimes it's fun to write alone. It depends how precious it is to you. You send it, you email it over to your co-writer, and then you go back and forth, and then you, it's very important. If, if you live 3,000 miles apart, if, if you're in California and he's in New York or Atlanta, yeah, it's tough, but um, most of the time I've written with people, we live in L.A. We don't always meet when we write. I'll write a few pages, he'll write a few pages, we're emailing back and forth, and then a Saturday or two have passed, we need to meet up and talk and it's all about bullet points, like we were talking about earlier, and um, note cards and getting it all on a whiteboard. It's constant work. I think it's helpful to have someone to work with. Um, it's just like, you know, when you're a couple and you have to run errands. Somehow it's like not work when you have someone to do it with. Yeah. And when you have to do it by yourself, <gasps> it's like, I don't know, like, oh, <laughs> So just having someone to check in with and, and, you know, skip along the screenplay with is helpful, especially when you hit, like, um, sticking points or, like, you're, yeah, when you're stuck to have someone to talk to, to, to like, or even someone to commiserate with. It's just like having support. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. if you end up writing the whole thing yourself, it's still great to get someone to get notes from or to check in with regularly so that you don't go too far off your path. Right. Like if, let's say, you, you like, sometimes you could really be, you could lose sight of what you're trying to do. Like maybe you've written some great scenes, but you've now left the main character out. <laughs> you know, and it's about the main character. So sometimes you just need like a sobering voice to be like, hey, that's really funny, but you need to throw it out. You mm. know, like a new some, A book author needs a book editor to help them sometimes, not just a book editor for grammar all that, it's sometimes shape it. Yeah, maybe you're working with the same book editor for many, many times over, and they, they know, you know, um, you're great, but you know, and... Or just like, you're you're too inside of it. Yeah, yeah. Like, in that you're, you're with the characters, and you really like this clever line that joke that you wrote and referenced. You know, you want to write it till the cows come home and put a stamp on it, but it doesn't so you need somebody who's not attached to, like, what you've birthed yeah. to go, hey, that's funny, clever, but it doesn't really help. It doesn't work. It doesn't move the story forward. You need those sobering moments of tough love from some of the people that know you best to go, hey, man, like, you guys have all made the best project. So when you wrote your, your character in Beast Mode, did you know that you would play that character beforehand? Or were you like, uh, oh, I'll play that character. I guess probably by the time we got there, I was like, yeah, this Hampton, I think I'm going to play him. Yeah. I don't think in the beginning, but I think by the time the script was done, who's going to play who? Well, we're thinking about this actor from Brain, and we definitely had a lot of people come up before we landed on CT. Uh, we know CT, but before we called him, we definitely had some, some cool people in mind. And... Um, for for everybody that's in the movie, there was we, you know, we had like our, our wish list for every character, and um, we already started the same for the next, and it's so much fun. Pre-production is so much fun when you're writing and 
getting together wish list for cast and where do we want to do this, what makes sense for the location, what looks the best. Yeah, it's absolutely fun. That's what we're doing now. Um, speaking of deadlines, I think, I think you know, early to mid-February, I better have the next one written. I think that is a good time because, you know, there's a project in between that's coming up that I think we want to shoot, and that puts our next feature hopefully in a late 20, early 21 uh, window. And that would be great. And that gives Beast Mode some time to come out and let people check it out, which we hope we're talking to some distribution people now. But, yeah, it is definitely fun to um, come up with names of characters. If you go to my IMDb and you click on my old movies, you'll see some really strange character names in my first films, even more so than Beast Mode. Beast Mode was my – I mean, even Breen Nash – and Huckle Saxton are pretty <laughs> weird, but man, the lead of First World Problems, his name was People Persons. Oh my god, that's brilliant! That's part of the fun is, is finding, you know, I like digging into the old time names from like the 1800s and going, ooh, we haven't heard Larchmont in a while. We, you know, Walt, when was the last time? You know, you hear these interesting names. Uh, where, uh, I mean, your last name, Willingham, I mean, that right there could be a first, first name. Interesting. Yeah, so maybe. Yeah, Will Willingham. Willingham. Uh, Milton. My first, I mean, name, my first name is Jackson. Oh, Jackson. That's what? That's your real. Wait, that's your real. real my name is Jackson Stan Willingham. Oh, gotcha. Very solid name. Very solid. So, so Stephanie, you're, so you, you don't have any plans to, or do you now? Now that maybe we've had this discussion today, to write to write your own project for yourself. I I would like to. I just it's got to be something that I'm inspired about. I don't want to just write something for myself for the sake of putting myself in something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got to be, I, I, it's got to be a story I want to spend time with. You know? And I, and so I you don't want to play any of the characters that you've already written in any of the stories you've written? Um, possibly, but like not where I'm the main character. But I, I, mean, I mean, there are, I, it's one, you know, I think the way to do, go about it is, is that you know, there's other actors I want to work with, and I think that nowadays that's kind of the way to get to get to work with people is if you write something that's good, you know, so I could find an actor I want to work with, write something for them that I'm in too that's good, and then, you know, you share it with them. Because, that's, I mean, that's the, the best way. It's like you have, there's nothing, and now you've created something. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm starting to get to a place where I feel good about my writing, where I know more people in the industry, where I do feel that that's a feasible path. So I think that's where it would come from. It's, it's, I mean, even like the, the A-listers are doing it too. They're not necessarily writing, but they're producing their own content. Because who wants to wait for somebody to give you an opportunity? That's basically what actors do, is we wait for auditions, we go out for these kind of generic parts and hope we're right for it. Right, right. And yeah. we might, and, and that's such a, like, there's no power in that at all. No. Like, no, like it, it, oh, it's like Latino lawyer. It's just generic. Well, do they want, like, the old matronly one? Do they want the young one? Do they want, you know what I mean? Like, it's like you can go in any direction, and you're just hoping you're right for it versus, like, it puts developing a, a project you're excited about and, and picking actors that you want to work with. And, like, you may not make money while you're working on it, but it will pay off. 
you know, like once it's done and you find people that collaborate with you, then you have something great like Playbag, you know, that whether you like it or not, it's successful. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys, uh, we have to wrap this up. Now, before we do, what are the – now, some of you already mentioned some of them, but um, what are either some of the projects that you just work on that, that people can expect to find you on, also your maybe your Instagram or any way that people can get a hold of you, um, and uh, I think that would be a good, good yeah. thing. You know, talk about whatever your current projects are, what people can find you in or to look out for, um, and, uh, you know, any way that you might want people to, to get a hold of you. Cool. Yeah, sounds good. Facebook is Beast Mode the Movie, and I can be found at Sultan King Spain on Instagram. And it is Beast Mode the Movie on Twitter as well. We're having a lot of fun with Beast Mode, but we are in development with Pink Mist. Can't wait to do it. It's going to be the coolest thing I've ever been a part of. But speaking of beast mode, we do hope to get that in distribution ASAP. I hope early 20, 2020 that everybody can see it. Everyone's messaging me. I want to see the dadgum movie, bro. I'm like, I know, I know. You, you don't live in Grand Rapids. You can't come to the film festival this weekend. So, yes, coming soon. Beast mode everywhere. Thanks for your patience. <laughs> Beast mode in the gym this morning. So that's, my trans- that's my transition. Um, so I was just in four episodes of The Bold and the Beautiful. And if you didn't get a chance to see it, you can see it on CBS Online. I believe it's free, or if it's if it's not free to everyone, you just need a cable login. So borrow your friends. Um, so you can watch it online. And uh, I'm going to be on the very first episode of. There's this new series when Apple launches its platform December 5th called Truth Be Told, starring Octavia Spencer. I'm in the first episode of her show, Truth Be Told. Yeah. So that, and Apple's launching a bunch of shows on December 5th, I believe. More Congratulations. Oh, and you thank you. And you can find me, just Google Stephanie Mora Sanchez. Mora, like Laura with an M. Sanchez, and you can find my Instagram, my website, my IMDb, all the stuff by my name. I love it. Now I'm going to throw in my own propaganda. You can find Yachtly Crew. Unfortunately, it's already a sailed-out show at St. Rock, but uh, at least now you're aware of it. It's uh, November 1st, and uh, your next possible opportunity would be November 8th, which is beautiful. November 11th, that's the gateway. And then 8th is uh, Infinity. So that's uh, November 8th. That is at the Viper Room. And, uh, and so those are the most immediate times. And I'm yes, that's right. That's right. West Hollywood, we tend to uh, – you know, it's so funny. We actually – so one of the guys in the band, he, so we all have aliases in the band. And uh, one of the guys is a huge Howard Stern fan, and he, na- he named himself Baba Booey. Just Baba Booey, Baba Booey. Um, so the real Baba Booey actually was at the Viper Room at one, in one of the booths. The last time we were at the Viper Room. I couldn't oh, that's believe so it. Crazy. I couldn't. It was, it was astounding. It, it was, and there were so many of these crazy things that are happening for the band that are like, okay, if this crazy stuff happens, then let's just keep dreaming of even crazier, crazier circumstances. It's like we're already in the zone of the Twilight Zone. Let's just let's just open up those, those arms even wider and see where that kind of crazy stuff goes. Oh, my God. It was just, it was just astounding. I, I mean – the kinds of crazy stuff that are coming this way, and um, it's, 
you know, I guess that's the power of, of, of love songs. It just, it just, I just adore brings your music. <laughs> I adore that genre of music. I grew up listening to it. And, like, especially in the dentist office. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, you'd be yeah. like, you'd have your mouth open. I'm not talking about women. Man, I don't want to change your life. Oh, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, like, four years old, like, oh, there's a woman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was so know? soothing while they're. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was, you can always listen to Oh, my God. Office, malls, grocery stores, and uh, elevators. Yeah, yeah. Oh, elevators. Or, or, you know, like looking for greeting cards, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's so perfect. Yeah, we can looking for greeting cards. And well, there it yeah. is. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much for coming by. I got to have you give us some kind of words. Some wise life wisdom. Yes. What kind of things can you splash us with? Just be kind to each other. That is good. Beautiful punctuation mark, folks. He really is the wisest. He's the wisest one of the bunch. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening, and uh, I'll be uploading this archive to mixcloud.com slash projecto or heck, I might even up. Well, we'll see. We'll see where it ends up, but no, I know for sure it'll be on the Mixcloud page, because that's where I like to put it, right, the page on the stuff. So uh, thank you, everybody on, uh, on uh, uh, Periscope for watching. And thank you, everybody, who are listening for, uh, to this. And we'll, we'll talk later, and uh, we'll have my grandmother uh, uh, sign us out here. Uh-huh.